Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Welcome everyone to episode 68 of True Blue Crime. My name's Sean and with me as always is my co-host Chloe. How are you doing this week? Good. It's a public holiday in Melbourne and my husband got me a takeaway coffee which I'm drinking and I'm also really sore from exercise and I just want to take this opportunity because my PT might listen and he gave it to me yesterday for being a sook about it. It's very annoying and I'm very sore. <laughs> and if anyone knows what this feeling is like, it's, it sucks. <laughs> and I understand it's part of it. I'm sorry to hear it. Um, I am uh, down on sleep, uh, having uh, had a, yeah. a bit of a uh, sleepless camping experience over the weekend. But uh, <laughs> I too, like you, am hopped up on coffee and ready to go. So <laughs> yeah, It's always a good sign. <laughs> <laughs> Let's get into it with some uh, Patreon shout outs. Yes, and these people uh, joined us in December. We appreciate you so much. And like I said last week, we did see the things come through and we hope you've been enjoying what we've been doing. So thank you and welcome to Freya Bennett, Rowena O'Sullivan, Dean Thompson, Paul Webstein, Amy Pankhurst, Tyler Brandis, Ben Rockovert, Gemma Hidaglo, Jason McGovern, Joe Westwood and Kelly. Thanks for the support, everyone. Much appreciated. And the case we are discussing today contains extreme violence and discussion of drug use. Some of the content will be difficult to hear, so we'd encourage our listeners to exercise self-care when listening to this episode. Today, we've got part two of the Melbourne gangland killings. Last week, we did part one and interlude number one, a midweek mini-sode to give some additional context and help bridge the gaps between the parts of this saga. And this week, we pick up where we left last episode, a meeting between Carl Williams and the Moran brothers to discuss mutual business interests, a fateful meeting that had permanently changed the landscape of the Melbourne underworld. Thirteenth of October, 1999. Carl drove his car to Gladstone Park a northwest suburb of Melbourne, and waited for Mark and Jason to arrive. When they did, the trio hopped into Carl's hire car and drove around until they found a small reserve in Barrington Crescent. It was mid-afternoon and the small park was flanked by residential homes. 
All three of the men were paranoid about police surveillance, so parks were safe places to discuss business. And the business to be discussed today was the purchase of pseudoephedrine, Mark buying from Carl. But when the subject of prices and past deals gone awry came up, Mark pulled a baton out and flogged Carl to the ground. The fit and agile Mark hadn't done enough though, and Carl shot up and tackled Mark around the waist, taking him down to the ground. Carl had a loaded 9mm handgun in his bum bag, but he was busy holding a fiery Mark down and couldn't get to it. Jason, however, had both hands free to procure a small 22 Derringer. He fired a warning shot, with Mark yelling out, shoot him in the fucking head, Jason, shoot him, in the background. A further couple of shots missed completely, and Carl saw Jason move closer, his gun-toting hand shaking uncontrollably. Put one in his head, Jason, Mark yelled again, the dashing football star unable to move the bigger Carl off him. Jason put the barrel of his Derringer to Carl's gut. No, Jason, Carl yelled, before the shot went off. The slug going into Carl's abdomen. The 13th of October 1999 happened to be Carl Williams' 29th birthday. His mum, Barbara, had baked him a chocolate cake, something she did every year for both of her boys. But in the past two years, it had only been Carl. Shane had tragically died of a heroin overdose in 1997, the increased strength of the drug hitting Melbourne during this time, leading to many experienced addicts doing the same. The Williams family was shattered by Shane's loss. It had had a huge impact on Carl, and he'd had to grow up and toughen up a lot in the past couple of years. His and Shane's dynamic had changed in the last couple of years of Shane's life too, turning from being the big brother looking out for Carl to Carl being the one picking up the pieces as his brother slid further into his addiction. Carl was hanging out with a much rougher crowd nowadays. The Williams house, a general congregating ground for them all. It worried his mum, Barbara, but Carl was happy. He was still respectful, despite now running a pill press from the home garage. Carl was still a good kid to his mum. They often sat and chatted over his favourite meal of baked beans, eggs and chips. But there'd been a noticeable change in Carl over the last couple of years, and he'd change again after his 29th birthday. In his younger years, Carl had tried his hand at a few apprenticeships, one time trying out landscape gardening. He mowed over some prize-winning roses and round up a bunch of his clients' lawn one time, so that was that. His skills lay elsewhere, organisation and managing cash flow. His dad, George, was by and large a small-time crook. When he and Barbara had bought out in Broadmeadows, he'd worked on the Board of Works, then a white goods debt collector, but he'd always tried his hand at a few little deals on the side, fencing some stolen goods, a bit of marijuana dealing. It was all part of getting by in the rough-and-tumble northwestern suburbs. But he wasn't flashy and he wasn't big time. George began running some card games from home in the 90s and they had some popular local punters. One, named Kiwi Joe, was in the drug trade. Carl never got into the poker games, despite it being a family affair. Barb and Shane's girlfriend Deanna would hostess the night. It was all too much work for too little money, far as Carl saw. He began couriering some drugs for Kiwi Joe, but after a six-month stretch in jail and a host of other colourful characters coming into his fold, Carl was looking to move into some more serious trading. He'd finally found his niche. 
Kiwi Joe, whose last name was also Moran, wasn't related to the Moran crime family from the inner suburbs. But when Carl started making his own gear, word caught on to the business-minded Mark Moran. He was impressed with the young upstart from Broadie. The quality of his gear was quite good. The Morans were known to him as his brother Shane had purchased pot from them in the years gone by. Carl saw this as his chance to get into something more serious, perhaps a partnership with some heavier hitters. Carl was viewed as little more than a gopher by the Morans, who always had a laugh at his expense when he was around. The cherub-faced Carl, who was nicknamed Fat Boy at this time, was viewed as a suburban scum. Shipmen, the Moran clan, used to refer to the likes of Carl and Co from the western suburbs. But Carl took it on the chin, and the money began rolling in, as did the knights on the town, bankrolled by the Morans. Carl had struck a deal with Mark, whereby he was able to source precursor chemicals and the subsequent cook and sales would have them splitting the profits 50-50, Mark agreed. Carl was hitting the big time now, it seemed, but the deal went south, and Carl never saw his estimated $1 million in profit after he did a short stretch in jail. Things on the outside were becoming complicated. Mark Moran, like all good Moran family members, had struck deals with corrupt police within the drug squad to procure precursor chemicals. And some of the Moran's chemicals had been lost in a big fire at one of Tony Mockbell's factories, where he'd agreed to store the chemicals for them. The thing was, these chemicals hadn't really gone up in the fire. Tony Mockbell had taken them for himself and was beginning to push out competitors. The Moran's were feeling the pinch in a way, with the competition rising on the street, and they still needed Carl for his chemical connections. They were looking at him very differently now, though. They'd underestimated Carl's ambition – He was making good money with his own gear now, using the pill press he'd acquired through his childhood school friend, Danielle Maguire. Problem was, Mark Moran was seeing Danielle Maguire, and he believed the press was still hers, and theirs, by association. He was willing to let Carl have it for the small price of $400,000. Carl had been willing to let his $1 million he'd been promised go, as he was making good cash now but Mark couldn't be serious that he wanted 400000 for the press when he owed him more than double that. The tensions between him and the Morans had also grown as Carl's relationship with Roberta had blossomed. Carl had previously had two girlfriends, someone related to Kiwi Joe named Priscilla, who was quite the elegant woman and gave Carl a taste of what the high life could be like, and another local young woman who we'll call Katie. She came from a respectable local family and was mild-mannered, which Barbara Williams liked. Roberta, however, who had had a rough-and-tumble upbringing through the foster system, was rough and ready to fight. Barbara wasn't a fan and thought the pair were more like drinking buddies than lovers, poking fun at each other and raucously laughing about it. Roberta detested the Morans, having had run-ins with the likes of Trisha and Antoinella, and forming the view that they were up themselves and looked down on her from their ivory tower. None of this helped when Mark called a meeting with Carl on his 29th birthday. Despite all these rising tensions, Carl was still happy to take Mark Moran's money, even if he was starting to inflate the price to increase his profit. Mark, however, turned ugly when the suggestion of Carl ripping them off was met with a response from Carl along the lines of it being a value-based trade. If they were still making a good profit at their end, what did it matter how much Carl marked up the cost of the precursor chemicals? It mattered a lot to a heavy like Mark, and he battened Carl to the ground. 
Carl had felt relatively safe from police and the Morans, meeting in broad daylight in a park. Still, he'd packed a gun in his bum bag just in case. He never got to use it. Jason, the more unhinged of the two brothers, had plugged babyface Carl with a baby-sized 22 Derringer, a palm-sized gun that looks like something a poker player from the Wild West would have stashed under the card table. Mark had urged his brother to shoot Fat Boy through the head and end it there and then. Had he done so, it may very well have changed the course of things to come or indeed stopped them in their tracks altogether. As the story goes, Jason was reluctant to kill Carl so they could get their money back, what they were owed for the pill press. Another version says that Jason's hand was shaking so much he could barely steady the small firearm and simply couldn't go through with putting a bullet in Carl's head. Happy to punch on with him over a piano and pistol whip him and his young pal Rocco Arico at the Melbourne Aquatic Centre, but not shoot him in the head. Jason put one in his gut instead. Strangely, the trio then got back into Carl's hire car together after this and he dropped them back to their car where they'd first met in Gladstone Park. The threats and phone calls from the Morans would come later on, but this event created a deep-seated hatred for the Morans in Carl Williams. What's wrong with you? asked Barbara when Carl walked in, glancing momentarily at his chocolate cake, before saying, nothing mum, just going for a lie down. His face was pale as he closed his bedroom door. A few minutes later, he called out for George. Barbara, unable to ignore whatever was going on, burst into Carl's room a short time later, to George looking over a small hole in the left side of Carl's abdomen. It shocked Barbara to see her little, well-dressed, clean and wimpy Carl with a bullet hole in his tummy. There was very little blood, but a decent burn mark around the outside. A quick trip to the GP, who advised a hospital visit was in order, and Carl was soon in the ER. A Moran family scout was soon on the scene, sussing out Carl's propensity for lagging on them. He didn't. Carl told police he was walking and suddenly felt a pain in his stomach. I have no idea who shot me, he said. The police pressed that they thought it might have been the Moran brothers. You'd better ask them, Carl replied with a smile. It was said that Carl's corpulence, his affinity for fast food, was what actually saved his life in this shooting. The bullet didn't manage to penetrate enough to hit any vital organs or arteries. It was clear to him after this that the Morans didn't want any competition and they were out to get him. After his release from hospital, Carl began plotting his revenge from the confines of a commission house in Furclose, Broadmeadows. He felt like the Morans were watching him in the meantime, mind you, but that could have been paranoia. Regardless, Carl, with the help from his old man George, kept pressing pills. The Williams Fubus and UFOs in broad supply now. They had began taking trips across the Nullarbor to Perth and north to the Sunshine State. Business was booming. But when it rains, it pours, and just four short weeks after Jason had shot him, Carl and George would find themselves in the middle of it. On the 25th of November 1999, the Broadmeadows police arrived at the house in Fur Close. No one was home, so they left, only to re-attend later upon officers observing vehicles now parked at the property. They weren't there for Carl and George, but another local family who'd been racking up a string of low-level frauds, running up credit card debts before changing their names and obtaining new credit cards, all without paying a cent back. In what must have been like a Tats Lotto win for police, when they entered the property upon re-attending, arrest warrants in hand, they didn't find the fraudulent family they were looking for. 
They did, however, hear some rather odd industrial machinery operating somewhere in the house. It was a pill press, stamping out FUBUs and UFOs. A search of the house found Carl Williams wearing a Mambo T-shirt and dusted in white powder, hiding in a bed. George Williams was in another room, between a bed and the wall. Throughout the search, they located a Glock pistol, 30,000 pills and almost 7 kilos of methamphetamine or speed, ketamine and pseudoephedrine, with an estimated street value of $20 million. Carl and George were charged with multiple drug-related offences and they were set to stand trial. But the trial was delayed when corruption allegations were made against members of the Victorian Police Drug Squad who were involved in this raid when they were called in by the locals. The Williams case, alongside several other drug-related cases, was postponed until the outcomes of charges pending against some of these corrupt officers were dealt with, probably because the cases they were involved in uh, would come out and likely be affected. Two officers were convicted on drug trafficking charges and served time as a result, an example of the sorts of corruption going on within Vicpol at this time, which let many a crook, like the Moran family, get away with many a crime. Carl had his suspicions they'd ratted him out, The timing of the raid was, at the very least, coincidental. As a result of the delay, Carl Williams was granted bail on the 22nd of January 2000. Y2K had mattered little to Carl while he was on remand. He was busy plotting his revenge, and organising was Carl's specialty. A mere jab at the Morans wasn't going to do much, and would probably make enemies of more powerful guys on the periphery. He'd have to strike hard and fast. About three days after Carl's release, Jason Moran was finally jailed for the King Street affray for a term of 20 months. This left Mark Moran on the outside on his own, without his closest ally. It stood to reason then that Mark might have needed some protection at this time. Heck, Carl had hired his right-hand man, Dino Dibra's protege, Rocco Arico, as his bodyguard. Would make sense for Mark to do the same. Not Mark Moran. Not any Moran. A pleb from the northwestern suburbs was no threat to them. Still, it was rumoured on the street that a recent parolee had landed the job as Mark Moran's muscle, his minder, and that man was Mad Richard Mladenik. It was just that, a rumour, perpetuated by Richard himself. In reality, it was rubbish. Mark Moran couldn't have cared less when Dino Dibra and Rocco Arico had kidnapped him. Mad Rich's brother ended up having to scrape together $5,000 to buy his hapless brother back. The incident was just one more strange occurrence in the already sordid life of Richard Mladenik to this point. Born in October of 1962, Mad Richard had attended school in the western suburbs before crime took a hold of him. He was said to be good-hearted, but his experiences in society and subsequent jail time for his behaviour changed him into something else. He was expelled from school and wound up in juvenile detention for the theft of a motor vehicle. This was in 1976. By 1980, he'd been in mainstream jail for resisting arrest, indecent language and offensive behaviour. At 182 centimetres tall or six foot in the old scale and 115 kilograms, Mad Richard was said to have an imposing figure but in reality, he had an inflated view of his influence, using standover tactics on significantly weaker individuals in the St Kilda area, predominantly low-level drug dealers and sex workers. A nice person would describe him as eccentric, someone less so as a lunatic. His Jekyll and Hyde-style persona was on display many times, 
Once, when he waltzed into a pub and demanded protection money, he was dressed in stereotypical gangster clothes at the time, such as a long trench coat, wingtips and a bowler hat. When he returned the next day to collect, he was arrested. The publican, clearly having little respect for his threat, had called the local police. Upon interview, Mad Richard asked the arresting officer what it was that he was using and if he could have a look. It's a typewriter, the officer replied perplexedly, letting him have a cursory inspection. Mad Richard proceeded to pick up the typewriter off the desk and throw it at the officer in a bout of, well, lunacy. When he was released, he attempted to extort money from a drug dealer and ended up limping away with a smattering of shotgun pallets searing in his leg. In prison too, he lived up to his moniker, at one time rattling a plastic chair across the iron bars of his cell for 12 hours straight. He was a loud, boisterous and theatrical prisoner. One time, Chopper Reed had had enough of his crap and slapped Mad Richard across the forehead with a shovel. He went down like a sack of potatoes, blood gushing out of his head, but he never said a word to the Jacks. The incident left him with another unpreferred nickname, Spade Brain. He preferred the self-imposed monikers of King Richard or Richard the Lionheart alongside his everyday aliases Richard Mantello and John Mancini, but it was Mad Richard that stuck. Carl Williams had used Mad Richard as muscle inside jail, but when he'd gotten out and extended the offer for him to join Carl's crew in a similar role, Mad Richard declined. He wasn't going to align himself with a nobody on the outside, he was going to be part of the Moran clan, a minder for Mark. At least, that's what he thought. Mad Richard had run up quite the drug debt in the meantime, allegedly in the vicinity of $120,000. And when Carl asked him for the money one time in Crown Casino's Heat Nightclub, Mad Richard apparently laughed and walked away. St Kilda nowadays is known to be quite trendy, with business people rubbing shoulders with eclectic street types that has a vibe but a much dingier past, which still lingers in parts. On the 16th of May 2000, Mad Richard was buzzing around his usual standover show he'd set up from the base of the Esquire Hotel on Ackland Street in St Kilda. He'd been out of jail for around a month at this time. The Esquire was a dive known for a dozen or so heroin overdoses in the past decade, and a slew of sex workers frequented the halls. The 40 rooms at the Esquire would be best described as a crime-addled shooting gallery and makeshift brothel. On this day in May, Mad Richard had caught up with a friend named Rocky who lived in the Esquire and Rocky's girlfriend, we'll call her Adrian. They lived in room number 18 and the trio had attended a local restaurant this evening which Mad Richard was excited about as it had Snapper on the menu. After bouncing around a few rooms that night with friends conducting sex work, Mad Richard returned to Rocky and Adrian's room, where they and another friend were chilling out, doing what one can only presume with context. Outside, a sex worker named Tatum had arrived to the Esquire to shoot up. She was in the stairwell overlooking the courtyard when she saw a guy wearing a hooded jacket walk in and beeline straight for room 18. Inside, Richard was chatting with Adrian as Rocky and their fourth friend had fallen asleep. They were rocked from their slumber when a man suddenly burst into the room and shot Mad Richard as he turned to face the gunman. Adrian screamed and Rocky yelled for someone to call an ambulance as the young, sun-tanned man wearing big black square-shaped sunglasses fled from the scene. But calling the ambulance was futile. Mad Richard Mladenik was dead. 
At the time, police investigations didn't progress as one would hope, with a number of underworld theories persisting for many years. But over the years, the likely truth has surfaced, as Carl and his current crew of Dino Dibra and Rocco Arrico have been linked as potential suspects, in one way or another, to this crime. Most recently, however, another one of Carl's growing crew was arrested for Mad Richard's murder, a man named Tommy Ivanovic. The result of this charge remains to be seen, but back at this time, we know Tommy had become one of Carl's most trusted and staunchly loyal crew members. Carl and Roberta had met Tommy when he was an apprentice chef at a restaurant called Bolero. They liked that he was from a good family, he'd grown up in East Brunswick, and in time, he'd actually become godfather to Carl and Roberta's daughter, Dakota. This would all happen from behind bars for Tommy, though, as not long after Mad Richard's murder, Tommy was convicted of murdering a motorcyclist who had followed him and confronted him over a driving dispute. Tommy shot and killed the man, landing him a lengthy prison stint, which in some ways might have saved his life. Tommy wouldn't be the only one of Kyle's crew who wound up in jail when the bloodshed escalated. The murder of Mad Richard Mladenik mightn't have seemed like part of Carl's grand plan, and perhaps it wasn't. What we know for sure, though, is that Carl was still feverishly working on that plan around this time, and it wouldn't be long until he turned plans into action. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass!" So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. In his younger days, Mark Moran was alleged to have been involved in a number of armed robberies and heists, one in particular being an armed hold-up for a cash tin. Mark was said to be the driver for Russell Mad Dog Cox and another guy named Santo Mercuri. Mercuri shot and killed armed guard Dominic Hefty in the robbery, an inciting incident which led police to then chase down another well-known armed robber thought to be involved, a guy named Graham Jensen. Jensen was shot and killed by police in controversial circumstances, which led to the revenge killing of two police officers the following day, a case widely known as the Walsh Street Police Shootings. Guys alleged to have been involved with this but were subsequently acquitted. The likes of Jed Horton and Victor Pierce were the kinds of company Mark Moran kept in days gone by. The drug business was his trade these days. The unemployed pastry chef and qualified personal trainer saw much more money in trafficking ecstasy pills than writing workout programs and glazing donuts. Mark Moran was considered a true heavy in Melbourne's criminal underworld at this time, but even the heaviest can feel the pressure. His recent efforts to strike precursor deals through corrupt police officers had been in response to the word on the street that the likes of Tony Mockbell and potentially others were squeezing out dealers in a ploy to take more market share. Indeed, the Morans had lost a truckload of pseudoephedrine in a mysterious factory fire in recent times. 
He discussed these issues with his brother, Jason, who was now behind bars for a vicious affray some years earlier. But really, Jason had also become the source of much of Mark's recent stress. The more dashing, daring and criminally intelligent Mark had always stood by his brother Jason, but there was no doubt Jason's recent high-profile run had caused him, the Moran family and their allies in the Carlton crew a lot of headaches. Mark had been forced, in some ways, into the limelight in recent times, more than he'd previously and probably more than he'd wished to be. He'd began to dress the part, cutting a taut physique with an expensive suit, a diamond-studded earring and hotted-up Holden ute. But beneath the surface, the truth was, Mark's depressive episodes had led him to try and take his own life more than once in recent times. The physical traces of his recurring anxiety spells were noticeable via his painfully chewed down fingernails. And when he wasn't down, he was up in a bad way. His usually calm head had taken a back seat and he'd recently assaulted a police officer at the Flemington Oaks Day. On another occasion, when a bloke made a derogatory comment about one of his female relatives, Mark shoved a gun in his mouth, took him away and administered a right old flogging. Outbursts like this and pumping weight to the gym only relieved so much stress. For additional help on that front, Mark allegedly sought the company of Danielle Maguire, a former school friend of Carl's, who now worked as a hairdresser in a salon owned by none other than Tony Mockbell. And while Mark hadn't employed the likes of Mad Richard or anyone for that matter to watch his back, he had been carrying around a high-tech handgun fitted with a silencer and laser sight. Police discovered this and a batch of pills in his car when they pulled him over in February of the year 2000. Police raids on associates' homes in the time after this would have only increased Mark's anxiety. On the 15th of June 2000, Mark had dropped his kids at school, gone shopping with his mum, Judith, and had lunch with his wife, Antonella, before picking up his ute from a local panel beater. At 7.10pm that evening, Mark met an associate named Darren Hafner at Gladstone Park Shopping Centre. He supplied Darren with some ecstasy pills, but had forgotten the marijuana, which Darren had also ordered. Darren thought it odd for the usually sharp Mark to forget this. Mark drove back home to his lovely house in Combermere Street, Aberfeldy, and had a chicken stir-fry and soup for dinner with the wife and kids. He left again after this for another errand, delivering footy tickets to a friend. It was unusual for Mark to go back out at night. Unlike many others in his trade, Mark wasn't a night owl, and usually in bed early with his wife, and then up early the next morning, crunching a hundred sit-ups before hitting the gym. But on this night, he went back out and returned home about 8.30pm. Instead of parking behind his big security gates or in his double garage, for whatever reason, Mark parked on the street. As he was stepping out of his ute, a gunman emerged from the darkness and unloaded two rounds from a sawn-off shotgun into Mark Moran's chest. The blast threw him back into his car, leaving his legs sticking out of the door. He was killed instantly, and the perpetrator took off into the night. Mark's biological father, a standover man named Les Johnny Cole, had been shot dead outside his home in Sydney some 18 years earlier. His stepfather, Louis Moran, was alive and well at this time though and drinking in a nearby hotel when he got the call that Mark had been killed. Lewis called a family war council of sorts the following day. Seven men attended to help narrow down a list of suspects. They whittled it down to three, 
Carl Williams was one of those names, but he was at number three. They still didn't think he had the balls or the skills to take Mark out. The police thought otherwise, as they raided Carl Williams's house the following day but found nothing linking him to Mark's murder. The police investigation, as seemed commonplace around this time due to reasons we've already mentioned, floundered as the drug squad refused to share information with the homicide squad. It came to light that Mark Moran had been under police surveillance recently too. However, just a few days before his death, that surveillance was called off for either mysterious or purely coincidental reasons. Charges have never been laid in Mark Moran's murder, but it's commonly speculated that it was Carl Williams himself who pulled the trigger. If that's true, it's the one and only time Carl did his own dirty work. A more assertive individual when factoring this and that Carl wouldn't cook a meal for himself when he could pay someone else to do it might consider other theories, such as the good word that a Williams family associate from back in George's card game days in Brody might have been the trigger man. Without running over all of the times in detail, a common theory is that Carl would have had just enough time to commit the murder before driving to a hotel some 20 minutes away where he was captured on CCTV. Police recreations of this drive managed to get the time just in the window, making it possible, but not probable. What we do know is that it's likely the murder weapon was supplied by Dino Dibra, Carl's right-hand man at the time, and that he was more than happy to be involved for no payment at all, even claiming credit for the job himself down the track. Mark's funeral was held at St Teresa's Church in Essendon, and his brother Jason was given special leave from jail to attend the service before returning to prison for a further 14 months. Jason posted a death notice which read, This is only the beginning. It will never be the end. And then in all caps, Remember, I will never forget. Loving notices also flooded in, expressing their admiration for Mark as a husband, father and friend, who would be greatly missed by wife, kids and extended family. Carl had indeed struck back, hard and fast and straight to the top, taking out the most respected and feared member of the Moran family. The dynamic was set to shift after this. Meanwhile, his boys, Dino Dibra and Rocco Arico, who Carl now had pictures of on his bedside table, were making more money off the bubbly baby-faced drug dealer than they had since, and their Scarface fantasies were still clearly at the forefront of their minds, when on July 15, 2000, some one month later, the pair were returning home to Taylor's Lakes around 7am after a night of clubbing and dealing. Dino cut off another motorist at a roundabout. 29-year-old in the other vehicle, Vincenzo Godino, gave chase, tracking both Dino and Rocco down in a neighbouring street where they'd pulled up in separate cars. Vincenzo saw them, thought better of confronting them and drove off, but Rocco Arrico gave chase, returning to his car and flooring it to catch up. Vincenzo pulled over and when confronted by Rocco, who he actually recognised, told him that he wanted to pull Dino's head through the windscreen for almost making him crash. Rocco responded by unloading six bullets into Vincenzo and drove off, leaving him for dead. Somehow, Vincenzo survived to implicate Rocco and testify against him at trial later on, but Rocco would be off the street well before then. It was only two days later that he was arrested alongside Carl Williams at Tullamarine Airport as they were boarding a flight to Perth. On his person... Rocco had five packages of cocaine, totalling 212 grams, 
which was said to be worth around $60,000 at this time. Rocco told police that he was a coffee shop manager, knew nothing about the recent road rage shooting, and couldn't explain why they had no luggage and business class tickets for what he said was a three-week holiday to Western Australia. Rocco Arico was found not guilty at trial for both cocaine trafficking and assaulting police, which he'd also been charged with. He was found guilty, however, of the road rage shooting and the kidnapping and copped a 10-year combined sentence for it. Like another of Carl's crew, Tommy Ivanovic, this sentence potentially saved Rocco's life. Had he not been inside the best part of the following decade, he too may have ended up just another victim in Melbourne's gangland killings. His mentor, Dino Dibra, however, had a different story ahead of him. He too was facing charges on kidnapping and assault, but at this time was still out on bail. And he was on the up and up alongside Carl Williams, even if his former Sunshine Crew brothers, Andrew Benji Venuman and Paul P.K. Calipolitis, hadn't backed him recently in a meeting where he'd demanded their loyalty. Benji had called out Dino on his big talk and lack of action, while simultaneously being jealous that his bigger, brasher buddy from Sunshine was dealing in the big leagues. Benji thought he should have finished the job last time when he put two in Dino's legs for being a dog. The guy had gotten too big for his breeches and his bravado was getting out of hand. He'd be harder to nail down this time though, being a recent police target and all, the paranoia had set in and Benji would need help from someone who knew Dino to pull this off. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. On October 14th, 2000, Dino Dibra went to a family barbecue, leaving in the early evening with plans to head out on the town that night. He'd gone to a friend's place in Cranbrook Street, West Sunshine, with a few mates, including his cousin Reza. They'd all smoked some pot in the shack, a property with only a fridge, TV and sofa inside. One of his mates asked Dino to move his rented Ford Fairlane in the driveway as it was blocking another vehicle. Dino, who at any other time might have told his mate to get fucked, obliged on this occasion. He walked out to his car around 9.15pm, when out on the road, a car screeched to a stop. Three men wearing balaclavas emerged, unloaded a volley of shots and riddled Dino with bullets. He was hit eight times from a 22 calibre firearm and four times from a 9mm handgun. As he lay dying on the driveway, one of the men walked up and finished Dino off with two shots into his head. Dino died in hospital several hours later. Carl rang Dino's parents only a short time after his shooting, before most others knew about it, asking them if it was true Dino had been killed. His parents had no idea, saying that he was fine and had been at the barbecue with them only hours earlier. Must be mistaken then, Carl said, before hanging up abruptly. 
Despite how close they were, Carl didn't attend Dino's funeral. The motive for killing Dino Dibra isn't one of the world's greatest mysteries. He'd even been told by police that if he didn't pull his head in, he'd be dead before he was 30. They were right. He only made it to 25. His hot head, itchy trigger finger, flagrant law-breaking, drug use, macho bravado and innate ability to make an enemy out of almost anyone likely all served as contributing factors. It appeared someone at that house had given the gunman the heads up on when Dino was headed out to the driveway, but that could never be proven. What became more apparent as time went on was the identities of the gunmen. Rumours swirling around Sunshine in the days after Dino's death had Benji, PK and Johnny Orciello, prior to him finding the Lord, being the three balaclava-wearing assailants. Johnny gave his alibi as having been at home with the missus that night, watching some videos, something that potentially checked out as he was never charged. Police later confirmed Benji and PK as suspects, with Benji being the one who delivered the final two point-blank blows. Who, if anyone, ordered the hit isn't abundantly clear, but going by Benji's increasingly free-spirited attitude to freelance for anyone who paid enough, it's no stretch to imagine his hand in this was a hired one, at least in part. What we do know for sure is that Carl seemed ambivalent to his friend's death. Louis Moran had Dino on a shortlist for Mark's murder and the means to take out a contract on his life, and Dino had made many enemies, including some of the Carlton crew. PK, meanwhile, had allegedly helped dispatch one of his own, one of the crew he'd taken under his wing at a young age. It was a new world now, and perhaps that sentiment was best left in the past. But the past has a way of catching up with people in this business. Paul Calipolitis had completed a panel beater's apprenticeship in his younger days and was a proficient student of the martial arts. In the end, he chose a criminal combination of the two skills, moving into stealing cars and selling them to rebirthing workshops in the western suburbs. He also began dealing drugs, robbing other drug dealers and standing over automotive businesses for money, the threat of a roundhouse kick from the steroid-infused PK enough for proprietors to produce the cash. PK's feared reputation as one of the western suburbs' most powerful drug dealers was solidified upon his release from jail after serving only a short term on a downgraded manslaughter charge. During an altercation with an associate, PK became enraged when the other man produced a gun. He disarmed the man, forced him to kneel and shot him twice in the back of the head. Upon release, PK became a mentor to a small crew of lawless youths from Sunshine who were around five years his junior. Teaching them the ropes as he knew them, the crew expanded his drug dealing, car rebirthing and standover network. Over time, the crew splintered. PK's network had dwindled, but his reputation remained. He began getting into some quite lucrative debt collecting activities, his territory now bordering on those run by the likes of the Carlton crew. He turned his sunshine-based home into a semi-fortress. With big gates and metal roller shutters, the place was more of a compound than a house. PK's drug and steroid taking had led him to an enraged state of paranoia, and by 2002 it was said that only a select few people were allowed into his compound. One of them was his brother, and on the 16th of October 2002, he arrived to find PK slumped against his bed, deceased from gunshots to the head. It had happened sometime earlier, that was for sure, 
and on the bed next to his body, police found a carry bag with neatly folded clothing, a sawn-off shotgun, black leather gloves and two shotgun cartridges. A handwritten sign on the dresser nearby read, Gotcha gone, cocksucker, ha ha ha. It was a common expression he and his mates used during jobs. There were no signs of forced entry or a struggle, which suggested to police that it was a friend who'd killed PK. And PK only had a few remaining friends he trusted. One was Benji Venuman. On October the 12th, they'd spoken on the phone around 18 times, and Benji had gone back to his old mate's house around 8.45pm that evening. PK's last text message was a threat to a local panel beater, something he made a habit of lately. His debt collecting activities had led him to brushes with the Moran family when a car dealer he tried to shake down turned out to have connections with them. It was seemingly resolved amicably this occasion. A subsequent death PK was chasing was with another automotive industry proprietor named Angelo Venditti. Turns out Angelo had connections too, with some of the media-labelled Carlton crew. Although he himself had a legitimate business and denied being involved in any criminal activity, the crux of Angelo and PK's beef came from an apparent bounce check he'd given the now deceased drug lord. A telephone intercept picked up by the Australian National Crime Authority alleged that Angelo had spoken with Benji Veneman and offered him a flight up to Queensland to cop a tan. The call piqued police interest as they knew Benji was mates with PK and that PK had beef with Angelo Venditti. Whether Benji ended up going to Queensland or not, we don't know. But if the National Crime Authority are, as their name suggests, their intel placed a whole group of colourful characters up in Queensland at this time, which may or may not have included members of the Carlton crew. This led police to believe PK's expanding debt-collecting activities had pushed too far from his previous western suburbs envelope, and perhaps his fate had been sealed during discussions in Queensland, but they could never prove that. They could never prove their case against Angelo Venditti either, or indeed another young associate of the Carlton crew, Frank Orman, both of whom were charged and subsequently had those charges dropped in the murder of Paul Calabolitis. It appeared Benji's freelancing skills were well honed now, and it didn't matter if his targets were old friends. Money talked. But he still hadn't crossed paths with Carl Williams yet. That had come later this same year. Carl was still planning his extermination of the Moran family. He'd taken out the crown jewel in Mark, and Jason was inside and somewhat safe for now. Lewis Moran, however, was still out and about. Talk of a $100,000 contract on offer from Carl to off Lewis hit the streets, but wasn't taken up immediately. Lewis, in the meantime, who'd initially fingered the likes of Dino Dibra as a better suspect for Mark's murder than Carl, subsequently came around and offered a contract to have Carl knocked. Ever the tight ass, though, Lewis's market rate was well below par. An initial offer of 40k, then up to 50k, wasn't taken up. In May of 2001, the Morans headed north and had stumped up enough cash to engage two Sydney-based hitmen to kill Carl, and the plan was for them to do this at his daughter's christening. Police got wind of this somehow and conducted a sting, purchasing 8,000 ecstasy tablets from an associate of Carl's. They traced the payment, $100,000, back to him and promptly arrested him and Roberta, taking Carl off the street. The christening was postponed as Carl was given 14 months for the trafficking offence. Meanwhile, on September 5th, Jason Moran was released from jail. 
having served his time for the King Street affray. He wasn't the same man who had gone inside. Jason had lost his brother, his staunch and reliable mate who'd always had his back, and he didn't have the same skill sets, nor did Lewis, who seemed more interested in a punt and a beer these days. The dynamic on the street had sure changed, and it was evident to Jason now that Carl had grown much bigger and had many more resources than they first thought, so much so that even with Carl locked up, there was still likely a bounty on Jason Moran's head. He was given the chance to leave the country, and he did just that, for his own life, and to take some heat away from a situation the Moran family and the Carlton crew wanted to simmer. He left with his family and headed to England. The tale of Jason heading overseas gave Carl much pleasure while locked inside Port Phillip Prison, even more so when he heard a mate of his had bumped into Jason on a London street. Pure coincidence, but it must have made Jason think about how much he'd underestimated Carl's networking skills and his newfound reach. Inside, Carl was actively recruiting in ways only Carl could for his ongoing feud with the Morans, and it was during this stint he met a man named Victor Brincat, commonly referred to by the aliases the Raptor and the Runner when his name was suppressed. Victor Brincat was a colourful character with a background in armed robbery. He and Carl became good mates inside, and he'd eventually become an integral member of Carl's evolving hit crew on the outside. Carl and Victor also became quite chummy with another man in Port Phillip during this time, Tony Mockbell. He came into the unit on drug charges too, and the trio got along famously, laughing and cooking together. Whether Carl and Tony knew each other before this, we're not sure. If they did, it was in a more limited capacity. But after their friendship grew inside, we know Carl would go on to do some work for Tony before working alongside him, making his way from suburban dealer to drug kingpin in his own right. Their newfound alliance would play a big part in the ongoing gangland killings. In the time after this, Tony Mockbell was released from jail. The former pizza shop and milk bar owner was now a huge, flashy punter, property investor, multifaceted business owner, but most notably, Melbourne's biggest drug trafficker, a likely fact that wasn't known to all at this time, but in time, would become evident. During his most recent stretch, Tony, who'd really had no major disagreements or fallings out with anyone other than police to this point, had allegedly been calling a well-known outlaw motorcycle club member a dog. The use of such a word was an egregious insult in the criminal underworld. The man he'd said it about was from Western Australia. His name was Troy Mercanti, and he was a member of the Finks MC at this time. Troy and his associate Fab contacted a man they knew who could help, a well-known Perth identity who had a friend in Melbourne who might be able to help mediate the situation, Mick Gatto. Tony Mockbell and Mick Gatto had crossed paths in the 80s and a number of times since, and had always gotten along well. Mick used to run gambling and Tony was a big punter, so it made sense they knew each other. Mick knew Tony's brother Horty a bit better, but his experiences with Tony had been positive to this point. Even if Tony was a bit showy, he had some charisma and was a good bloke. The meeting was arranged through this line of associates. Mick made it clear to Horty what his brother needed to do, come down for a nice lunch, apologise and move on. Horty assured Mick Tony would do just that. It was a sunny November's day. Mick and the rest of the crew were having a grand lunch, whole roasted pig, lots of wine and talking. 
Mario Condello was there and Benji Venyaman had even stopped by. But when Tony arrived, it was clear to Mick that something was off. He was acting very aggressively and arrogantly. The crew set to chat went off and did just that. Troy and Fab, Tony and his bodyguard, Big Mick in the middle of it all. Troy started, I hear you've been calling me a dog. Well, you are, aren't you? Tony replied. Mick reckons he lost his Calabrian complexion at that point and turned white, not believing what Tony had just said off the back of his reassuring conversation with Horty. Troy and Fab immediately flew off the handle and began laying into Tony. Tony's bodyguard tried to help and Mick stepped in to break it up. It all happened so quick, Troy and Fab were furious and rightly so in Mick's eyes. Mick took Tony to the bathroom to clean up after this. Tony's head had already began to swell and it turned into the size of a pumpkin after the beating and stayed that way for a fortnight. Mate, what was that? You were out of order to put me in that position, Mick said. I cop a flogging and you give me a spray, Tony responded, outraged. You were meant to apologise. Instead, you've created an even bigger problem, Mick concluded, before calling in Benji with orders to take Tony away and get him patched up. They had a doctor on the payroll who'd fix up these things discreetly. Mick couldn't believe it, and neither could Tony. The experience was said to have changed an otherwise courteous dynamic after this. While Tony was getting patched up, resting up and healing over the next couple of weeks, he, like Carl, put his networking skills to good use. Not that Benji Venyman needed much convincing, money talked to Benji, and with Tony, there seemed to be piles of it. The pair struck up a friendship during this time, and it was through Tony that Benji met Carl Williams. They had to have known of each other if they hadn't crossed paths before, but it had become an interesting friendship with a complicated dynamic that would again contribute to the ongoing bloodshed. And we'll talk more about that next week in part three of the Melbourne gangland killings. So that's it for that one. And uh, I don't even know where to start, but really just another messy web of people obsessed with money or power or both. And just so much violence and so much drug use. It's wild to see how things are evolving and revisiting this that, you know, as I said last week, growing up in Victoria was something that was talked about a lot, but I just the breadth of people involved and the the mentality of them all is just mind-boggling. And something's definitely dating here too, even though this was not that long ago. And how weird that they communicated so often via the newspaper. We've had two messages so far left in the classifieds. And it's just a little side note that I just wonder how the underworld communicate these days because it's certainly not in the classifieds. Yeah, no, the one thing that gets me, and I think I mentioned this last week, is the uh, in this sort of evolving landscape, it's the switching of sides mm. and the reasoning behind taking so many of these lives. Certainly not as straightforward as... I initially thought in terms of the motivations behind behind each yeah. murder. It was clearly a, a very turbulent time with a lot of different little power struggles going on. We'll hear a bit more context around that later in the week uh, with the second interlude episode, uh, bridging the gap between these parts two and three in this saga. Yeah. Now we've got some happy thoughts. Yes. Um, so I'll go first. Um, mine is, so as I said at the start of the episode, just reiterating, I'm very sore from exercise and everyone should feel bad for me, but um, <laughs> that it's a public holiday today and I live in a wine region and I never go to things close to me, um, but I'm going to a couple of places. I've made up a little winery tour um, that I'm doing with a friend today. So I'm excited 
because um, so many people say, oh, you're so lucky to live where you live. It must be so nice to go to the places. And, of course, when you live close, you never go. Um, so I'm excited. I've carved out a day. I was going to stay home and work um, and I've decided I'm not going to. I'm going out. <laughs> so that is my happy thought. Awesome. How about you? Uh, similar in the sense that uh, on the weekend, you know, I did some local stuff that uh, you know, I probably hadn't gotten to yet um, for a number of reasons. But, yeah, you know, we went camping and did some four-wheel driving, uh, which was good. It was sort of the first time we'd gotten on some uh, semi-challenging tracks with the little ones in the back <laughs> um, and they ha- they handled all of that pretty well. So um, it was a rough night uh, on the sleep front, but they did well <laughs> in the car the following day and we checked out some pretty cool sites. So that was good. That's good. So it's a half win. <laughs> yeah, that's it. <laughs> I'll take it. <laughs> yeah. And that's it from us. If you want to get in touch, you can email us at truebluecrime at gmail.com. You can join our Facebook group, which is called True Blue Crime Podcast. And you can find us on Instagram by searching True Blue Crime. If you'd like to support the show, you can head over to our Patreon page. The link's in the show notes. Over there, you can support the current free content we make on the main feed and get all of our bonus content, which includes uh, Blue Label episodes, murder lounges, uh, sneak previews, updates, and all that kind of stuff. Thanks again for listening, and we'll catch you all again next time. Thanks, everyone. Bye. Bye.